Welcome to the Reclaim Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Whether you're a part of our Reclaim Church family or just tuning in for the first time, we would love to connect with you on Instagram at Reclaim Church or at our website at reclaimed-church.com. We hope this word encourages and inspires you today. Let's dive in. Good morning. Um, as we were in worship, I was thinking, I don't know if you guys are friends with Allie on Facebook, but if you are, you know that we've been feeding a little baby calf the last like two weeks or so. Um, the calf's mom died because she was really old and I didn't realize, but the cow had a calf and I found the calf probably about four or five days after the mom had died. It was only a few weeks old and I found it under one of our trailers, like just completely um, malnourished. It couldn't stand up. It was barely picking its head up. So um, Allie and I ran to spar and we got some formula because Benaya just didn't have enough. And we came back, we put the calf in the back of my truck and Allie and Benaya were in the truck and drove us back to the house and I'm holding this calf and I'm just thinking to myself, like, if any of you guys have ever held an animal and you think it's on the brink of death, I don't know if it's just me, I think it's probably just a human thing, it's so heartbreaking. I would imagine it would be the same thing, um, you know, God forbid, if you were in the line of work where you ever held a human in a similar circumstance, you know, you just want them to experience health. You want them to be healthy, to live a good life, even when it's an animal. But anyway, so we, we took this calf home and, you know, brought it, brought it in our backyard and that's where it's been living for the past two weeks is in our backyard. It comes up to our French doors and looks through. But anyway, he couldn't stand up. He couldn't drink. He had no desire to drink. And I would go out there and I would hold his mouth open and I would pour the milk down his throat. And then you kind of just rub, um, rub their neck. You know, my grandpa kind of taught me how it's done. You rub their neck and it gets them to swallow and you kind of just force them to drink this bottle day after day. And again, it's it's heartbreaking because you've seen them not turn out too well. And the whole time you're just thinking, please eat. I want you to eat. I want you to eat because it's so scary when they're you know moving their head away. They refuse to take the bottle because you know that this bottle is the one thing that's hopefully going to save them. So anyway, we spent four or five times a day we would go out and I would pick this calf off of the ground. It couldn't stand, it couldn't, you know, barely pick up its head for itself. I would pour the milk down its throat. And over the last few weeks, he has improved tremendously. This morning I walked out with the bottle, he jumped up and came running at me and you know, he drinks the entire, the bottles are like this big. They're a little bit bigger than Benaya's. I spend like almost a hundred bucks a week in formula between my over weight son and this calf. So I'm really going through it. Um, but anyway, it was just, it's, it's so exciting to watch him now running towards the bottle with great excitement. And as Allie was singing that song, may I never lose my wonder. And then she kind of broke off and started saying, may I never lose my desire. And I thought to myself, you know, that really is the image of health. May I never lose my hunger. 
Because you see, the way that you know that someone is in dire need is when they do not desire food. That is the image of health is when they desire food. And it's so heartbreaking, again, to hold that calf's head up and try to force it to feed, just hoping that it will want the bottle. It refuses it, it's throwing its head away because it doesn't realize that this is the very thing that's going to save it. At times, you can actually make the calf sick in the beginning because it's so malnourished, you're trying to feed it, and it can be a really rough situation. But after the force feed, it comes to a point where it really falls in love with this bottle and it's going to knock you over to get it. And I was singing this song and I was thinking to myself, I've been singing this song all week. I love that song, Fall Like Rain by Passion. And I was just thinking, you know, God, it is all about the wonder. It's all about the desire because my desire, my hunger is a reflection of my health. And that's when you know that you're in a place of concern is when you're no longer hungry. David put it this way, taste and see that God is good. It's from tasting that we get to be a part of his goodness, that we get to see how good he truly is. But yet many of us, We can find ourselves in seasons or areas in our life where we are laying on the floor completely malnourished and we have no idea that the thing that we're rejecting is the very thing that's going to bring us life. And I was just thinking about those words, um, you know, may I never lose my wonder. And I was going, God, I don't want to lose my wonder. I I don't want to lose my hunger for your word. I want to desire you. I want to taste and see. So that was just kind of um, what I was thinking as we were closing. And if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we have been in a series called The Sequel, because right before um, The Sequel, we did a series on the Gospel of Luke, which in case you didn't know, that was written by this guy. Spoiler, his name is Luke. All right. So he wrote The Gospel of Luke and he wrote it to this man named Theophilus and his family. And as he finished, he said in Acts chapter 1, that that I wrote the first um, collection, my first book, so that you could see the work that Jesus began to do. And the reason why he wrote his second book, he again, he wrote it to Theophilus and his family. He wrote his second book so that Theophilus could see the work that Jesus continued to do. So this book is all about what he continued to do. The first week we talked about chapters one through seven, where we got to see Jesus after he had resurrected, he appeared to over 500 people and he taught his disciples about the kingdom. And we got to see this great gift come into become about, you know, within the believers, they got to experience the Holy Spirit. And um, last week we did chapters eight through 13, and we just got to follow some of the acts of the apostles. All right, so this week we're going to do Acts chapter 13 through 20. All right, and in case you're new to this, in case you didn't read, Acts chapter 13 through 20 is all about Paul's missionary journey. So Luke really dives in, focuses in on this man named Paul, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. All right, So for many years, Paul's home base was in Antioch. And if you guys were here last week, we talked about how Antioch was the 
first international Jesus culture, first international Jesus movement. It was the first place where believers were called Christians or Christ ones. This was kind of the central focus point that because it was a really large area and believers would go out from this um, from the city. So this was Paul's kind of central area in Antioch. And um, again, in sections, in this section, Luke tells us about three road trips that Paul and his co-workers go on. So they traveled by land and by sea, and they would go out from city to city, really being evangelists, preaching the good news of the gospel. He would teach um, what Jesus had done and the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant, what it was that he came and what it was that he did. So it's really interesting. Again, so there's three different journeys. Um, Paul kind of goes out through Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey and all three of them. And then he also goes throughout some ancient Greece and all that. It's not really important, but there's these three different journeys. And on the first one, he sets out to Asia Minor and he does this interesting thing. Every single time he enters into a city, he does the same thing. The first thing he would do once he entered into a city is he would go into to the synagogues. He doesn't start in the town square. He doesn't first go and eat. Um, That's what I would do anyway. But he would enter into the synagogues and he would start to teach the people in the synagogues that Jesus was the messianic king that was promised long ago. He would even enter into these theological discussions and debates. And it's so interesting to find that Paul's first concern was to reveal truth. His first concern was to go into the house of quote unquote believers. They were, um, they believed in the one true God, but they're messianic Jews and they're waiting for the Messiah. And he would go and he would teach them that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. He would teach that Jesus is true. And I love this part about Paul because many times in church, it can feel as though people are inviting you into some sort of blind faith. You know, I've seen it before when difficult questions are brought up. I've heard people of influence answer those difficult questions by going, well, that's why they call it faith. You know, well, you you just got to have faith. And what that means is I don't really have a good answer. So I'm just going to call it faith because it sounds like I might not know everything. So in order to make it sound like I know everything, I'm just going to call it faith. And I love that Paul never did that. Again, I love the theology. And again, that's a big word. It just means the study of God. I love the study of God. I love to look at ancient scriptures. And I love the fact that when Paul would go into a city, he didn't just invite people to have blind faith, but he sat down and showed them that Jesus is true. I love the words of Dr. Frank Turek, how he says, I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. And it's because if you actually take a, take a long journey down facts, truth, if you look at the historical evidence, all of the truth points towards the fact that Jesus lived, there's no debate, that he died and that he rose again. So in moments of uncertainty, I don't have to rely on blind faith. In moments of uncertainty, I rely on truth. Because we all go through doubt. We all go through moments where there's a fleeting thought. And we ask ourselves, is there a chance that 
this isn't real. In those moments, you're not meant to rely on blind faith. You're meant to rely on what you know is true. Having faith isn't just believing in something that you can't comprehend. Having faith is believing in something that you know to be true. And that's what Paul would do every single time he walked into these cities. He would teach people the reason the, the reason of how Jesus was the fulfillment to all of these messianic prophecies. We saw Philip do that earlier on in Acts 2. They weren't just inviting them in. Oh, if you can have faith, come follow me. They were entering into a place of teaching and friendship where they would go, I want to show you that Jesus is true. The sad truth is many of us never get invited into Christianity this way because the people that invited you were never told that it was actually true. I have asked so many people this question, all right? I shouldn't give it away because then I'm not going to be able to ask you. But I've asked so many people, why are you a Christian? I cannot tell you the answers that I've gotten. Well, you know, they don't say it, but it's, well, my family brought me to church. Or, well, I, I had this experience once where I just feel that he's real. And so I'm going to spend the rest of my life following this person that I believe is real because I had the goosebumps. You know, there's, there's a lot of stories like that, but I've never heard someone look me in the face and go, I, I am a Christian because it is true. Not much of our faith is actually built on a foundation of truth. And that's why when your kids go off to college, they come back atheists because they are now debating. They're coming against a, they're in an actual debate against their feelings. And the atheist is trying to bring in facts. And we go, oh, you know, don't send your kids to college, you know. Oh, don't, don't let them go off there because they're going to come off. They're not going to be a believer when they come back. That might be true if you don't actually teach them what is true. When, when facts are brought up, the, you should actually have true facts to combat them. And I love the fact that that's what Paul did. He didn't bring his feelings into the conversation. He brought truth into the conversation. How great would it be if your relationship with Jesus, again, it's a relationship, but imagine if the foundation was built on truth and not a feeling. Imagine if the foundation of your relationship wasn't built on the fact that this pastor really got in the feels, the pads were playing, the piano was going, and you walked forward because you felt something. As amazing as that is, I don't want to like come against that. As amazing as that is, when you are against someone, when someone is communicating to you and they have all of the facts, that moment where you felt a tingling is not going to feel so real. It's not going to feel so real when they have all of these facts lined up. You're going to go, well, maybe I didn't feel something. Well, maybe he isn't real. The, the foundation that Paul laid was one of truth, and I absolutely love that. I love 
truth. And I love the fact that Jesus is the truth. So the first thing, again, that's what he would do. The first thing he would do is he would go into these synagogues. He would preach the good news. And then you could find Paul normally in the town squares or in the marketplace. And he would continue preaching and he would continue teaching this good news that he had come to preach. Now, some scholars, I love the way that they paint this picture. Dr. Tim Mackey says, I can imagine that Paul would go into the city and after leaving the synagogues, he would set up in the marketplace and he would start to build his tents. And in the middle of building his tents, as people would walk by, he would preach to them the good news. He would work hard day and night. And in the middle of working hard, he was constantly preaching and he was constantly teaching. And I love this visual because at times it's so easy for us to feel like, well, you know, I believe in God and I'm going to do the best that I can to honor him. I might even tell my children about him or read a story if I'm really godly. But that's kind of the extent of Christianity in many of our lives. You know, it's up to the pastors and the evangelists. It's up to them to to share the good news. But Paul wasn't just some, he was the apostle Paul, but yet he was also someone that was willing to work hard day and night, working and making tents. And at the same time, he was preaching the gospel. So whether or not you work at Publix or whether or not you're a school teacher, whatever it might be, when you're working hard, it's in those moments that you can actually make the greatest impact by revealing what it is that you know by the good news that changed your life in the midst of your work, in the midst of family reunions, those are the places that you are meant to spread the gospel. And we have been duped into believing that Christianity is just confessing something and never moving forward. I love the um, saying, you know, it's a big debate about whether or not salvation is a work, but it's faith equals salvation plus works. I love that saying because, again, you know, faith without works is dead. So there's a big debate on whether or not it takes works to be saved. But I love the theological view, the study of God that says faith equals salvation plus works. So works comes along with salvation, and part of those works is spreading the good news to go into the world and and create disciples of all nations. That was part of the teachings. So again, he would go, um, he'd go into the city, he would preach in the synagogues, and then you could find him in the town square, and he would be building tents, he would be preaching the good news. And I love the idea that the Apostle Paul was a hard worker, was a tent builder. I mean, you look at Jesus, the Son of God, he wasn't born as a king, he was born as, this, as a boy to a Nazarene, and he makes tables. I mean, isn't that such a flipped upside down kingdom that these were hard working men and yet they are some of the most influential people in all of human history. I love Paul's um, you know, view of hard work. This was, uh, I'm gonna read you a snippet from one of his letters, his second letter to Thessalonica. He said this in chapter three, verse eight. He says, we never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. 
We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. So what's the example to follow? To work day and night and not to be a burden. I don't see many people putting that on their coffee mugs or making t-shirts about that. Paul was an extremely hard worker and he saw the value in working hard in order to be able to provide for yourself and for your family. He goes on to say, even while we were with you, we gave you this command. This was a command by the apostle Paul. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's businesses. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work <laughs> and work to earn their own living. We command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you fathom if a church said that to someone nowadays? We command you to work and to make a living to provide for yourself and your family. Can you imagine, can you fathom the way that society would break out? And again, I don't want it to sound like, you know, I don't want to switch into a political message or to sound like I have it all together, but could you imagine if our culture, if my generation and the generation to follow could truly adapt these two principles, these two commands that Paul gave, that we are meant to work hard, to earn a living, and get this, not to meddle in other people's business. Can you imagine the way that our culture would shift, that lives would change? We would stop seeing now hiring every single square inch of our country. Things would completely change because we would actually follow the kingdom that he was preaching. Now, we don't like to say it, but this is part of the kingdom that he taught. Hard work is part of the kingdom. That's the life that Paul modeled. It's the life that Jesus modeled, and that was the command. That is such a heavy word. That was the command that he gave, was to work hard and to earn a living. So again, just, I know I said it like five times, but just to recap, he'd go into the synagogues, he would teach on truth. He would enter into the town squares. He would enter into, you know, the marketplaces and he would continue to preach even as his life went on, even as he made his living, even as he did what he had to do to survive. The constant, the constant behind it all was he stayed on mission. Even when he walked into Walmart or Publix and we have our grocery list and we know what we're doing, behind it all, we know I'm on mission. God, is there anybody? Is there anyone that I'm supposed to talk to, that I'm supposed to pay for? Because although I have my list, although I've got to do what I have to do to survive, to make a living, to make ends meet, which is all amazing, it's part of his command, I'm going to stay on mission behind all of it. If we're honest, it's very easy to get caught up in the command of working hard and we end up losing the mission behind all of it. We end up losing the constant. 
the constant is continually doing what it is that Jesus taught, continually doing what it is that he has called you and I to be. Being a Christian, a Christ follower, isn't just believing that the Bible's true. That's a great start. I want you to read it, but it's glory to glory. It's moving forward, farther, faster. And yet many of us, we've been a Christian for 10 years and our lives look the same as they did a decade ago. We're not going from glory to glory. We just found a ticket to heaven and we're contently sitting on the bus waiting for it to start moving. I wonder, are we actually being a part of the constant? Is there a call that we're actually being a part of or are we just ready to punch our ticket and we're happy and we call all the rest of the world sinners and we're going, oh, I've got my ticket. I'm sitting on the bus. I'm going to make sure my kids go to a Christian school because if they go off to that other school, they're going to come back atheists and I don't want that. You know, so we're just going to make this little huddle. We're going to have lots of tall walls and we're going to be really safe in here. It's because the foundation was never built on truth. It was built on a feeling. So I want you guys to have your foundation built on truth. And I've done a whole bunch of messages about that in the past. And, you know, we'll do more in the future. But again, we're just moving right along. So one of of the things that I would notice constantly, maybe you guys noticed it too, between the section and acts is Paul would preach with such power, with such conviction, and it doesn't matter how he did it, he was constantly misunderstood. And I don't know about you guys, I hate being misunderstood. It really bothers me because I'm like, I communicated very clearly. I am not the problem. You are the problem. Are you listening? You know, I'm working on that. I just hate being misunderstood. And yet Paul was constantly misunderstood. And there's this really cool story in chapter 14 that I wanted to read for you guys. It's cool, um, slightly um, comical, pretty interesting. So we're going to go ahead and read this portion of scripture in Acts chapter 14, and it's verses 8 through 20. So yeah, we got it on the screen. It's kind of small because there's a lot of verses. So if you want to read it on your phone or whatever, we're going to go with it, okay? So it says, while they were in Lystria, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Again, can you imagine being at this meeting, sitting next to your friend or your family member that has never been able to walk in their lives And in the middle of Paul preaching, he turns to your friend, to your family member, or maybe even to you and goes, stand up. And the guy leaps up and starts walking. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in meetings like this? It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. 
They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermaeus since he was the chief speaker. <laughs> Again, it's like, you're missing it. <laughs> you're missing it. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. When the apostles... But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothes in dismay. Now, this was just something that they did back then. It was pretty common. You get upset and you tear your clothes. I got really upset a few months ago and I tried it. Apparently, our clothes are better made now because <laughs> I was just standing there like, you know, I really tried. I was like, yeah. I thought it would bring me some release, but nothing happened. So maybe I'm going to get some um, cheaper made shirts just to wear when I'm depressed and I can break that open. But this was something that they did pretty often. Every time they got upset, they would just tear their clothes in dismay. So they tore their clothes, ran out among the people. Now I know what you're thinking. Did they get more clothes? I don't know. All I know is that they're torn and then they're running out among the people. So you guys can visualize that however you'd like, but it's the Bible. All right. So they tore their clothes in dismay and they ran out among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. Okay, again, look at the clear communication, right? Paul's on point. He knows what he's doing. They were off, but now they're going to be on, right? And he says, we have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and give you, gives you food and joyful hearts. You see, many times we're wondering where God is and we're waiting for this miraculous sign to sweep through. And Paul's going, no, no, you're actually missing the way that God works in your lives every single day. The same God that called out to the crippled man, stand up and walk is the same God that gives you a bonus at your job or, or allows rain to fall so that your grass can start growing. All of these amazing miracles that we experience every single day is the same God of the scriptures. He gives you food and joyful hearts. But even with this, even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Again, it kills me. I'm like, Paul, you, you did a great job, man. Like the communication was so clear. You truly showed them who God was. And again, because of their culture, because of their background, because of their dialect, they can barely restrain these people from sacrificing to them. Now, there seems to be um, quite a bit of a time gap between verses 18 and 19, a little bit at least. And then it says in verse 19, then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and they won the crowds to their side. Again, the Messianic Jews who are still waiting for the Messiah, they didn't believe that, that Jesus came and that he fulfilled the law. Those people came and they won the crowds to their side and they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of town thinking that he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and he went back into town the next day and he left with 
Barnabas. Again, it depends on your interpretation of the scripture, but in my opinion, I think the clear interpretation is that they literally stoned Paul to death. They literally stoned this man to death and they dragged him outside of the town. And it talks about, can you, again, can you imagine the stories, what it would have been like to be among these believers as they came and they surrounded one of their closest friends looking at him in death and they start praying over him and he stands up. Now you could say, oh, well, he wasn't actually dead and that could be true, but I also don't know anyone that's beaten to the point of literally you think that they're dead and then they get up and end up traveling the next day, all right? So it seems as though there is some type of miraculous event that happened to Paul because literally the next day he stood up and decided, you know what, let's go ahead and walk a few hundred miles. You know, I, I, feel, I feel ready for that, for that um, you know, next endeavor, that next journey. And that's the life that Paul lived. He would go from city to city to city on these three different missionary journeys from the synagogues to the town squares, and he would preach the teachings of this man named Jesus. He would try to establish this kingdom where people would swap anger for love, where they would give up their greed and they would accept generosity. They were establishing this kingdom and they were following the teachings that Jesus taught. That's what it was all about. And yet he lived a pretty difficult life. Life Like this wasn't a one-time thing for Paul. The message that he preached often was, would cause riots. They would try to throw him out of the town. They would beat him, as you can see, to the point of death. And they would even throw him into jail for long periods of time. And you might wonder, like, why is there such a strong, strong disagreement with Paul? Why is there such anger? And one has to do um, when the opposing side of truth, when they can't you know, actually debate truth, they try to silence truth. That's just kind of the way that life works. But another primary reason to why Paul had so much um, restriction, why people hated Paul so much for what he was teaching, is you see when Paul would come into town and he would preach about this this God, the son of David, the one that's going to reign on David's throne forever and ever, he was really messing with Roman culture because as you can read this section, you'll see one of the key points in Roman culture was the worship of all of these different gods. They had hundreds and thousands of gods and it was actually common for a Roman citizen. They would have this portfolio of all of these gods that they would worship. And it was in extremely influential. They would believe that the gods that they worship would bring themselves safety, their family, and even their city. So when Paul came in, he wasn't just adding another god to their list of gods, but he was coming into the city and he was going, I serve the one true God and all of these other gods are a sham. They're a false. They're not real. And what it was doing is it was, again, causing people to retaliate because they were living their lives, believing that their safety came from these gods, but also it was one of the primary forces, driving points behind their economy. 
There were temples all over the scattered world. As you could see, the temple of Zeus was not far by. So they would sell rams and goats and all these different ritual items for sacrifices. Like the economy was literally driven by all of these different worships, all of these different temples and worshiping of these idols. So Paul was now coming after their sense of safety. He was coming after their economy, their sense of wealth. And you get to see that in one of the stories, someone has him thrown in jail because he ends up casting out a demon from this girl that they had. This, these people were you know, having this girl and she would tell people their future and Paul cast out the demon and he gets thrown in prison because of it. Again, he's, he's messing with their finances, with their income. And not only that, but to take it a step further, when Paul would preach about this good news, he would call this, um, this Jesus the Son of God, or he would use the term Lord, which is the very phrase that they would use to describe the emperor at the time. So it was so easy to hear this, and it kind of was as a contrary kingdom that was coming in and trying to destroy Roman culture and the Roman government. So people were constantly starting riots. They were beating him. They were throwing him in jail because they thought that this man was starting a revolution. And although he was, it was a different kind of revolution. Because Jesus taught for you to respect your authority, for you to pay your taxes, for you to pray for the emperor, to pray for the king, even when you disagree with them. This was the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. But again, Paul was so commonly misunderstood. He would announce that he's Lord or the son of God, and people just couldn't comprehend how this could not be a threat. So that's how it was taken. Paul's message was often taken as a threat. And yet it's really interesting, again, as controversial as this was and as threatening as it was and dangerous because you would either be beaten or killed or thrown in prison for believing this message, people continued to follow it. And do you know why? It's because it was true. Even in the midst of danger, even in the midst of threats, people will follow truth. And that's why they continue to be amazed at the message that Paul was preaching. Even though he wanted, they were trying to cancel him, they were trying to silence him, all of that stuff, they were doing it because it was true. And they just couldn't deal with it with it. So despite the dangers that came along with the message, people seemed to be captivated by the story of Jesus and how his kingdom was one where everyone is welcome. These people would form new families where they would eat together and watch out for one another. They would take care of each other's poor. They would, they would help one another in their work and all of these amazing things. They were actually, get this, they were actually living life as though Jesus was king. They didn't just believe that he was real, but they were actually living their lives as though he was king. I wonder, do you just believe that he's the king or do you actually live your life as though he is? Because that's the way that these people were living theirs and that's the reason why the entire world was getting flipped upside down. 
even though there were some that accepted the message, some that rejected it, and some that absolutely despised it, the world was getting flipped upside down because they were living as the Jesus was actually king. So Paul lived an extremely, and you really see it throughout these chapters, he lived an extremely difficult life. And yet in the midst of his difficulties, people received so much joy, so much peace because he was establishing a kingdom that was built on righteousness, peace, and joy. And if it wasn't for his imprisonments, again, we get to see kind of the good that comes out of the bad. If it wasn't for all of his imprisonments, we probably wouldn't have been blessed by all of the letters that he had written. There's four epistles known as the prison epistles because they were written while he was in his um, first imprisonment. Again, he was in prison quite a few times, but while he was in his first imprisonment, he wrote the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the letter of Philemon. He wrote all of these books while he was in his first imprisonment, and he wrote them because he couldn't get to the people. So not only were these different churches blessed by the letters, but for thousands and thousands of years, followers of Jesus has been, have been encouraged and blessed by these letters because Paul went through difficulties. And it's amazing how God really can bring good out of the bad, how he really can turn weeping into joy, how he can take the worst circumstances and turn them into greatness. Now, those four were written during his first imprisonment. Like I said, they're known as the prison epistles, but most scholars actually believe that he wrote seven letters in total while in prison, seven New Testament letters that we have in our canon. And we might not have those if it wasn't for all of his prison time, all of his difficulties and his trials that, we, that he went through because of him, we've been able to live in great joy and receive so many great principles because of the sacrifices that he made. So after Paul's three road trips, Paul's reputation really grew, all right? Among all of the believers in the beginning, you really get to see how people don't trust him. They don't believe that he really changed. But after all of these years, he's really seen as one of the leaders of this movements. But not only does he grow in the midst of all of these believers, but his reputation grows amongst all of those that want to see him killed and that want to see him put in prison. So this, these, this section of Acts, the way that it closes is at the end of these last three missionary journeys. And the next stop the next stop for Paul after these three was Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to talk about next week because, again, it's filled with a city of people that want him killed, that want to see him either imprisoned or put to death. And that's what we're going to talk about. So why he goes to Jerusalem and what happens when he gets there will be our final section in the book of Acts. That's what we're going to talk about next week. So that's going to be chapters 21 through 28. All right. So if you guys can keep up, if you can read along chapters 21 through 28. All right. And the reason why we're going through this step by step is because I want you to hopefully learn to read for yourself. 
I want you to see how exciting scripture is and how it truly changes your life. I want you to taste and see how good God is. Because if you don't truly taste, you're not going to realize your need for the nourishment. You're not going to realize that there is a sign of, of you know, unhealth. You're, you're unhealthy, the fact that you're not hungry. So we need to make sure that we're in a position where the sign of health is hunger. When the bottle is brought out, your desire should be to come running. When I'm in social settings, again, I don't want this to sound like I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm a mess, all right? So just know I'm a mess. But when, when the topic of like anything scriptural comes up in social settings, this is like the pinnacle of my life. Like I just absolutely love it. Whether the person agrees with me or disagrees with me, just to get to talk about the subject is so exciting. And we were talking, again, I'm going to close. This is a little bit of a rant, but it's close enough that I'll allow it. All right. We were talking about in the prayer room the importance of unity and how, you know, Paul's went a separate way because of John Mark and how many of us find reasons to unify behind one another. Most of the time, what creates friendships is a, a sports team that we both like or a job that we both happen to be at. And why all of that is fine, it's good, and it's dandy. Can you imagine if what actually unified us, what created families and friendships, wasn't our sports teams, but it was our God? Imagine if the thing that we desire to talk about, to discuss, and to communicate wasn't just you know stats or finances, but what if it was actually what's in this book? What if that was the driving force behind the way that we lived our lives? All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for you guys, and then we'll be done. So God, thank you for the honor and the privilege to read your word. I just ask that you would give us a hunger, because sometimes it's difficult. Life gets busy, and we don't really have a desire. I ask that you would give us the desire to taste, that you would let us see how good you are, how good your word is, God, that you would release a hunger upon us, that we would desire to know you and desire to know your word. In your name, amen. If you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe for more from your Reclaim Church family. God bless, and we hope that you have an amazing week.